You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Amen. Go ahead and grab your seats. It is good uh, to be worshiping with you here this morning. Um, Apparently, some of you thought I quit. Uh, (laughs) I had a staff member come to me this week saying, you know, Mark, uh, a lot of people on Sunday mornings... uh, they don't know you work here anymore. <laughs> and the reason for that being, I'll explain that now, is typically Sunday mornings, uh, I'm in my office counseling. And uh, so my family and I, we attend Sunday nights, or Saturday nights, sorry, and then Sunday mornings, I, I'm in my office. So uh, it's good to see you. Uh, hopefully, you know, I haven't died. Um, I'm here. Uh, you haven't scared me off. I'm still employed last time I checked. Uh, and it's a privilege to, to open God's word with you here this morning. So if you have a copy of it with you, you can open it. Uh, Jeremiah 17 is where we're going to be uh, camping out this morning. And we're going to be talking about a subject that if I'm uh, being brutally honest with you here this morning... Um, It's not just a subject I'm passionate about because I love soul care and I love biblical counseling. Uh, I'm passionate about it because if I'm honest, uh, it's a shortcoming in my life. Uh, One of many. Uh, We're talking about an area this morning that um, is a a daily thing that I am cognizant of and constantly working on. Uh, And that topic, that theme, that that idol in my life is is what I call the fear of man. Uh, Scripture has an awful lot to say about that. It's an incredibly subtle, uh, but very deep-rooted and, and very concerning idol in our lives when we turn away from Christ, where we, we take our eyes off of him and we begin to find affirmation, identity, and purpose in others. Uh, that's a really shaky thing to be in. And what we're going to see in Jeremiah 17 this morning is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah to the nation of Judah, urging them to come back urging them to take their eyes off one another, to take their eyes off themselves and put them back on the Lord. And so to kind of illustrate this principle, I was, I was sharing with a few of my colleagues this week, because um, I am employed here. We're clear on that, all right? I, I do work here. And so I was sharing uh, with some of my colleagues about my junior high experience. And, and it's interesting. We were kind of laughing because we're all built differently. That's what I think makes our, our team here at Harvest so special is uh, I can hear Jason when he's on the phone if I'm in the parking lot. Uh, he's just got a voice that carries. I know where Jason is at all times. Um, me? I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm kind of a background guy. Uh, contrary to what you see this morning, you know, I'm more kind of a relational, you know, I'm a little more kind of just, just get me in a room with one or two other people and let, let's get, let's have it out. Let's get down to business, you know, and we're, we're wired differently. But in junior high, that's, that, that's scary, you know. Some of you are junior hires, some of you are parents of junior hires. You know that junior high is a fragile, fragile time. Uh, There's a lot happening physiologically, there's a lot happening socially, there's a lot happening mentally, and and all of us, uh, and it starts at junior high, are are desperately trying to figure out who we are, where we belong, and how we're unique. Uh, These are fundamental questions that all of us try to answer, and when you're 12 years old, that's that's a big challenge. And, uh, and so I remember going to youth group with a little bit of fear and trepidation, being a quieter guy, uh, you know, and, and the Lord took it real easy on me because my first event uh, was an all-nighter. <laughs> so 12 uninterrupted hours uh, with strangers, you know, and, uh, and I remember going, leaving my hockey game with some of my friends and we were going to this all-nighter and our church had an office uh, because we were still building our, a new facility. So we kind of rented this office space and we were just sitting on the sidewalk uh, in front of it. 
And, uh, and one of uh, the guys that we were hanging out with, uh, his name was Adam. And, uh, and Adam was the total package, if you're a junior high student. He was good looking, all right, ladies, he was good looking, okay? Uh, he was athletic, uh, he was witty, he had a good sense of humor, he was musical. Uh, for a 12-year-old guy, if you had him hanging around you, that was, that was currency, all right? That, that meant you had arrived as a 12-year-old, all right? And so we were hanging out with Adam, and we were being junior high boys. We're doing what junior high boys do. We're trying to figure out who we are, where we belong, and how we're different, and we express that by punching each other. We, we express that by making fun of each other, horsing around where, where, you know, chips and pop are sitting on a curb, we're being boys. And, uh, and roaring into the parking lot comes a van with its side door open. Tip for you, if a van comes near you with a door open, just take a step back, <laughs> all right? Just get out of the way. And we sat on the curb and four guys hopped out of the van uh, wearing kind of ski goggles with their hoods pulled up, grabbed Adam, the best thing our youth group has produced in decades, <laughs> and threw him in the van and drove away. And, uh, and as a 12-year-old, I just went into hysterics. Huge no-no if you're trying to be cool. Okay, don't cry in front of your friends. And, and I'm just, I'm processing what's going on. And, uh, and I'm sitting on the curb and I'm in denial. I'm like, what? Like, did the rapture just happen? <laughs> like, did, did, you, did Adam just go to heaven right now? You know, where did he go? And that shifted to grief. You know, and then I'm, I'm asking the Lord, like, why wouldn't you take me? You know, we love Adam. We need Adam, you know. And, uh, you know, and I'm grieving and I'm crying and, uh, you know, it's embarrassing. Uh, but we're all sitting there. Police are now involved. Parents are now involved. 45 minutes later, the phone in the church office rings. And a youth pastor from an affiliated church, one that we had partnered with, a lot of cross-pollinating relationships, that youth pastor is on the phone saying... Uh, so some of our boys got their licenses this week. And uh, to celebrate, they thought it would be funny to kidnap one of your people and bring them to our all-nighter that's happening tonight. And uh, so right away, I'm just like, thank you, Lord, he's alive. You know, like I'm concerned for him. You know, I'm, I'm freaking out. And, uh, and so the, you know, so parents get involved. There's obviously a bit of a process there. But there's a lot of social collateral damage that I now need to repair. Uh, my friends are starting to laugh at me a lot. And they're saying, Mark, you, you cried over Adam. And I'm, I'm like, I have allergies. <laughs> you know? Like, Mark, it, it, it's October. I was like, stuff grows. You know, it can happen. You know, I'm, I'm deeply now embarrassed at my reaction in light of the fact that he's now okay. And, and it's this, this is the fear of man. This is what happens uh, when we lose sense of who God created us to be, lost sense of the purpose that he created us for. We feel ashamed of that. And so we look to other people to validate and fulfill us. I, uh, I, I still, you know, I, I said it in the nine o'clock service, it happened again in this service. I cannot get through nothing but the blood without crying. Beautiful song. Part of it is because Daniel has the voice of an angel. We all accept that. But, but there is something so uh, deeply powerful in the words that, that touches me and it brings me to tears every single time. But if I'm not careful, I get embarrassed about that. I get ashamed of that. I'm fearful of what people will perceive of me. This, this very act of me talking to you is a terrifying experience because I, I want you to like me. 
I want you to love me. And odds are some of you are going to think I'm pretty boring this morning. And I got to accept that and move on and understand that my ability to speak is not contingent on my skills. It's what Christ is doing in light of my weaknesses. Amen? And so we're here this morning. We're all created in God's image. We are all equal and, and, and gifted, and we need to celebrate that. But so easily we fall back into ourselves, and we, we look to others, and we try to seek validation from other areas. We call that idolatry. Those are things in our life that give us purpose and function and meaning over and above the relationship that we have with our Lord and Savior. And so Jeremiah 17 first addresses this whole notion of, of idolatry, but then drills down into the heart of the fear of man. Jeremiah comes to them some five years before Josiah would take the throne. Five years before uh, Judah would finally repent, and he's coming to them and he's pleading with them, take your eyes off the carven images. Take your eyes off each other. Come back to the Lord. Five years. Five years it took. He's called the weeping prophet for the amount of times that history and this book records him pleading and weeping on behalf of Judah to come back to the Lord. There are real consequences when we have idols in our lives. And so if you have your Bibles and you're there, I'm going to invite you to stand. Jeremiah 17, we're going to read the first eight verses of it. Um, so let's stand and read those together. Here we go. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their ashram, beside every green tree and on the high hills. On the mountains, in the open country... Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all of your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you. I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Let's pray. Lord, we love you this morning. Father, I, Lord, the irony of this message and coming from my lips is not lost on me. And, and Lord, I'm so appreciative of your spirit and I am so appreciative of the work that you are doing in my life as I know you are doing in this church. Would we cling to that? Uh, Lord, would, would you be the source of our identity, our affirmation and purpose? Father, forgive me where I go elsewhere when I look to others. Uh, when I fuel emotions and attitudes about other people that, that posture and puff myself up. Lord, would I not be fearful of people? Uh, Lord, would I need them less and love them more? Would that be true of us this morning? Help us to love you. Help us to see the truth in your word, the logical consequences that come from our sin. And as your word tells us, Lord, your loving kindness drives us to repentance. Would that be our hearts and would that be true of us here this morning? pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. 
So right away, what we're given in Jeremiah 17, we're given some context as to the state of affairs in the nation of Judah. And in verses 1 to 4, uh, what we see right away is that Judah's sin is undeniable and her judgment is unavoidable. Uh, it is very plain and obvious what is happening in the nation of Judah at this point in time. God has given Jeremiah a direct message uh, because there are no secrets. It's very plain and obvious. We see this in verse 1 and 2. Uh, you see right at the beginning uh, in verse 1 there it says, uh, with a point of diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Okay, a tablet was a, st a stone. It was a flat piece of stone that, um, that people in that time in history would have used to inscribe, to write, record. It was a means of recording history and, um, and, and, and giving purpose and definition to things. And normally, what we, we think of Jeremiah and we think of the promises that come saying, you know, I will take your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31 tells us, you know, I will take my word and I will impress it on your heart. This idea of there's transformation that's available and can come. But the current state of affairs is that the, this Judah, their heart is rock hard. They're tablets of stone. It's been a progression that as idolatry has taken root in their lives and the longer and longer that has continued and been perpetuated, their hearts have become tablets of stone. We know they're hard stones because of the instruments Jeremiah references that are required to describe or give definition to their hearts. A pen of iron and a point of a diamond. Both are very durable. Both were readily available and were perhaps the most uh, you know, durable instruments that could be used to, to carve and etch irreversibly even the hardest of stones. And so we know their hearts are incredibly hard because this, this iron that had been shaped in the form of a pen that was used to literally chip away at stone to describe and, and give definition. Uh, and it was so hard, in fact, that quite often what would happen is they would actually insert diamonds in the end of those pens uh, for added strength and, and ability to carve. They could use diamonds to sharpen it. They could, uh, what we are given here is kind of a, a tools that are used to, to describe even the hardest of hearts. Their sin is, is undeniable. It's so, so obvious. Number one, for the condition of their hearts. The second thing is this, is it was very public. We see at the beginning of verse two, children remember their altars and their ashram. It's important to note that what's happening here in the, in the nation of Judah, it's not kind of a four-year journey a high school student takes on in rebellion. Uh, we're talking decades of idolatry. Grandparents, parents, children are cognizant of what is happening in the land. This wasn't a short-term kind of thing. This was, this was deep-seated, long-lasting idolatry. Children remembered this. The other reason we know children remembered this uh, is because they were often vitally integral into pagan worship. The god of Moloch, who we know was prominent at this time, that was certainly in the area in which uh, Judah was dwelling, uh, was a common pagan god, was often celebrated and worshipped through the sacrifice of children. Children had a front row seat to pagan worship. We're told that the, the ashram, these poles, these shrines that were erected to the god of Asherah, they're on the hills, they're on the mountains, they're in the high places, they're everywhere. It's not all that different from our, from our time today. You don't have to look far to see idols in people's lives and things that can so easily ensnare and infatuate us. 
These poles of, of Asherah are everywhere, we're told, and so their sin is deep-seated because their hearts are hard, and it was incredibly public. And now God has some judgments, and hear these judgments um, very carefully because there's, there's aspects that are very relevant for us here this morning. Let's look at verses 3 and 4, four judgments that were given. Number one in verse 3, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places of sin. Number one, we're told that the nation of Judah is going to become poor. They're going to lose their possessions. They're going to lose the material blessings that God has given them because their hearts are no longer aligned with his. The second consequence of their sin is that they're going to loosen. They're going to loosen their grip on their heritage. And this is a particularly scary one for me. Because um, I think a lot of us can wrap our heads around, you know, I can live without this, or I can understand why God would take this away from me. But imagine your identity, that relationship you have with Christ, is now loosened and almost uh, out of your mind. That's a serious, serious thing that God's doing. What effectively is happening is God is saying, have it your way. Understand I'm a loving God, I'm a gracious God, I'm here for you and I'm going to be pursuing you and I, I desperately want you back, but I cannot work with a heart that is made of stone. So have it your way. You're going to forget. This was a people chosen by God, had a deep connection with God, and we're told that they're going to forget that. They're going to lose sight of who they were, lose sight of who God made them to be. The third consequence is, uh, is this. Not only are they going to be poor, they're going to lose their identity. We're told they're going to be slaves. We know that in the coming years, Babylon is coming and is going to carry them all off to be slaves in a foreign land. The nation as a whole was going to be held under siege and would be in captivity. And then lastly, the very last line of verse 4, we're told that God's anger is kindled and will burn forever. That's a serious, serious offense. And what I encounter most and hear my heart on this, okay, coming from someone who's deeply invested and enjoys walking with people in, in dark and hard places, I hear the humility when I say this, is we are all too quick to sin, point the finger at God because there are natural consequences to our sin. I deal with people an awful lot who even come to Christ and say, you know, somehow I thought things would get better. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that life will be easy. Nowhere are we told that if you do this and ask for forgiveness, it will, it will be kind of eliminated from your life. We know the eternal consequences of those sins are, are paid for by Christ on the cross, and, and praise God for that. But if you do X on this side of heaven, there is going to be a Y. And how dare we point the finger at God and call him unloving when we have turned our hearts away from him. So let's be careful when we look at these judgments. These are logical conclusions from what happens when our hearts are not aligned with him. And I'll tell you why. Here's the obvious reason. The judgments that God has just given Jeremiah to pass on to Judah, they are experiential extensions of what has already happened in their hearts. There's a very clear parallel here that when we engage in idol worship, when we turn our hearts away from the Lord, when we aren't focused on him, of course we're going to lose sense of our relationship with him. Of course we're going to be enslaved by those idols. Of course God is going to be angry. And while it may not translate into you losing your material possessions, I guarantee you will lose the blessing and benefits that come from that relationship with the Lord. 
So the consequences that are being spelled out for us happen first in our hearts and then in our experience. That's just pure logic. There are consequences to our actions. And Jeremiah is coming to these people and saying, look, your sin is obvious. It's undeniable how hard your hearts are. And so here's the logical conclusion. Here's the unavoidable realities of your idolatry. The question for us all this morning is simply this. Who do I fear? Who is on the throne of your heart today? Who is calling the shots? And I got to be honest, this is a real difficult one to pin down. It's really, really difficult. A lot of times we think, you know, much like my illustration at the beginning, we kind of idolize people. We want to be like the atoms of the world. But it can be the opposite. The very people we hate can become idols for us. As we fixate on that, as we try to puff ourselves up by putting other people down, that's just another form of the fear of man. My kids can become an idol. My spouse can become an idol. Any thought, attitude, emotion, or person, and however they're connected, if it takes precedent over God in my life, that's fear of man. It's an incredibly deep-seated thing that I would argue I'm probably not the only one in the room who struggles with it. And so there's a blessing and a curse that comes from this, and Jeremiah spells this out in such clear and such kind of vivid language. You look at verse 5 and 6. Here's the definition of the cursed man. This is the person who, who struggles with fear of man, who has obvious idols in their life. Look at verse 5. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes, his, makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Notice there's no both. It's not either or. You can't worship God and man. It's one or the other. James chapter 1 verse 8 talks about double-mindedness. A double-minded man is someone who is unstable in all his ways and should expect nothing from the Lord. We can't have it both ways. There's no both. We can't worship God and worship man. We can't worship God in anything else. Either we're for God or we're against him. That's a serious thing to diagnose in your hearts. I was reading just this week uh, Genesis 22, and uh, a lot of you know uh, I have a little boy. Uh, you probably, well, Saturday nights you would see him just terrorizing the cookie table. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a vivid, he's a active, he's a fantastic young boy, uh, but he can drive me nuts. He's three, you know. Three-year-olds drive most people nuts at points in time. And I'm reading Genesis 22, and it's the story of Abraham uh, taking his son Isaac up Mount Moriah to, to sacrifice him. God woke him up in the morning and said, look, I want you to take your son. I want you to go on this mountain. I want you to make him a sacrifice to me. And I'm reading this, this chapter. I'm thinking, Lord, you know my son can drive me nuts. But I don't think I could stab him. <laughs> you know, I don't think I could do it. There's not a chance. And, and that says a lot, I guess, about my faith. It says a lot maybe about my humanness, but I really don't think I could kill my son. And what grabbed me in that entire passage is right when God stops him, literally hand in the air, ready to stab his son, God says, stop. Don't do this. I now know that you fear me. In other words, the entire exercise was a test to see who was in control of Abraham's heart. To what degree was he willing to trust the Lord, even if it meant doing the most heartbreaking thing? 
It's a really confusing narrative to, to track with. But what it tells me, number one, is this, is God takes this seriously. God is jealous for our hearts. And we all too easily can be distracted by other things and we can elevate other people, their attitudes and their opinions of us, uh, and make those more important. Who's, on, who's in control of your heart? Who's calling the shots in your life? You can't have it both ways. Someone who tries to worship both God and man is cursed. That's a serious, serious thing. And so now we're given three symptoms of that curse. Look at verse six. He is like a shrub in the desert. So not a flattering image, all right? You're, you're, a, you're a bush struggling to live in a desert and shall not see any good come. Here's the first symptom. You're fruitless. You're useless. You have no effect and no um, ability to be used by God for his kingdom purposes. We know looking at verses 7 and 8, this is the parallel that, that Jeremiah is making, is that the person who is cursed, the person who trusts in man, is fruitless. It's an excellent question to ask yourself this morning. When was the last time that I could trace God doing something special through me? When did I display that fruit of the Spirit in a real prominent and obvious way? Am I being fruitful? Am I useful for God's purposes? It might mean going to a family member and repairing that relationship. It might mean going to your spouse and saying, I'm so sorry for expecting the wrong things from you and setting you up to fail like that. How unloving of me. It can be anything. When was the last time you exercised and showed true fruitfulness as a result of your relationship with the Lord where he was glorified and you did the hard thing? Are you fruitful? You know, the good news for us here this morning, and we know the promise is coming, we know Jeremiah 31 is coming, where our hearts from, from stone will be turned into flesh, but here's the key for us to remember this morning. That can only happen if we're humble. Humility is the only thing that can reverse a heart of stone. First and foremost, it means repentance. It means identifying the idol and repenting of it. And there's a difference between repentance and remorse. I sit with a lot of people who are good at saying sorry. What is hard to find are people who are sorry but then live differently, who are intentional about uprooting that idol in their life and then moving forward. The act of true repentance requires humility. It means, Lord, I have a problem. I'm looking elsewhere other than you for my purpose and identity. Forgive me of that and help me not to go back there. It means I'm going to tell my spouse. It means I'm going to tell my small group. It means I'm going to get accountable. I'm going to get humble and ensure that I never go back there. That is what humility looks like. Philippians chapter 2 tells us it's this whole narrative on, uh, on Christ being a servant. He, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Consider the needs of others higher than yourselves. You want to uproot the fear of man in your life. Need people less and love them more. Love people more. 
Don't seek something out of that relationship. Don't chase something. Don't need something from that. Just, just love them. Be humble. Repent of that. I love Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It says, Declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For believers in the room here this morning, this is just the act of reprioritizing. It's recommitting. It's, Lord, I'm declaring you God of my heart. I believe you rose from the dead. Thank you for, for saving me. And if you're here this morning and you haven't encountered Jesus, you don't have that relationship, understand that the true answer to this dilemma in your life is only found in the gospel. Don't leave here this morning without having that conversation about learning what Jesus did on the cross for you, how you were created with purpose and with intentionality. You are incredibly special in God's eyes. Hear about that. Hear about the love for you. Believe in that in your heart and be saved. As Pastor Paul would say, put the stake in the ground and let's move forward. Be humble. Repent. Be open. Be transparent. Make the plan. And let's move ahead. Are you showing fruit in your life? Second symptom is this. Not only is the cursed man fruitless, the second thing we're told is he's going to be thirsty. He's going to dwell in the parched places of the wilderness. We know this by virtue of the fact that it's a desert. It's hot. You can't put deep roots down and sustain long, fruitful life because there's no water, there's no sustenance there for you to grow. And so fruitless people are always thirsty people. And this is the fallacy of idolatry, is that your idol does not quench your thirst. It just perpetuates it. Your idol doesn't fix anything. The fear of man doesn't actually fix anything. Rather, like an addiction, you just need more and more. You're always going to be thirsty. And the third thing is simply this. You'll die. We see in the very last line of verse 6, in an uninhabited salt land. If the fear of man is what's running your life right now, you're going to be isolated, you'll be alone, and your, your heart will die. Your heart will become figuratively stone. It will become hard. It will be uh, beyond what you can repair. It needs the love and grace of Jesus. Your heart will die. Lauren Hillenbrand uh, is an autobiographer, uh, captures an incredible story. Uh, some of you have probably seen the movie. It's called Unbroken. Um, don't waste your time with the movie. Just read the book. All right? <laughs> I'll leave it at that. The book, the movie ignores the best part, and, and you'll find that in the book. And here it is. A uh, man named Louis Zamperini grows up in New Jersey, uh, becomes a, a fighter pilot in World War II. Goes off with the Americans, uh, gets shot down on a bombing mission. Uh, lives through that with the crew, uh, and they're floating in the Pacific Ocean on a raft for weeks. Um, some of them died from starvation, some died from dehydration, uh, some got eaten by sharks. It's not a good scene in the Pacific Ocean, all right? He's floating there for weeks at a time, washes up on the shores of Japan, where he's immediately put in a concentration camp. Uh, he is beaten repeatedly, he is tortured, he has his teeth knocked out, uh, he's buried underground for weeks at a time. Uh, this man is living through some serious stuff. The war ends, he's released, and he comes back to the U.S., uh, and there's 
baggage that's going to come with this, we'd all agree, right? You're not going to live through that and not have some issues to kind of talk about when you come back. And he's wrestling with those, and he goes to some dark places, and here's the best part. And this is what the movie misses and what we all need to hear this morning. Uh, he gets invited to church, hears the gospel. God calls him out of his brokenness, and he's saved. Amen? Great, great story. All right? Here's where the point ties to his story, is he talks about in his autobiography how desperately he wanted to reach over the side of his raft and drink that salt water. He had an inner conflict that he could meet with an external result. Or so he thought. And this is the same of idolatry. We have legitimate inner needs that need to be met. The problem is, is rather than finding them in Christ, we reach over the raft. And what happens when you drink salt water? It's bitter, it makes you more thirsty, and as the salt concentrations rise in your body, they become lethal and you die. And he talks about this in vivid language about how he wanted to live so badly, but he knew the very thing that he thought would save him would kill him if he touched it. That's what idolatry does to us. That's what the fear of man does. As those idolatrous concentrations well up in our bodies, our hearts die. You're cursed. Here's the blessing for us here this morning. There's a cursed man, and now we learn of the blessed man. Look at verse 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water. So right away we see the comparison, right? The person who trusts in the Lord is not a shrub. You're not even a sapling. You, you are a full-on tree. You are rooted. The verse goes on to tell us you are rooted by streams of water. You are not dying of thirst. You aren't thirsty. Uh, you have access 24-7 to life-giving water. Paul in, in Colossians chapter 2 talks about this concept. Uh, hear that word rooted in the verse. It says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You want to be a tree? You got to be rooted. You got to have roots that go to places that give life. It's got to intersect with God's love and grace and purpose for you and nothing else. You got to be rooted. It means walking with him. It means obeying the teaching we heard Paul say. It means you got to know what God's word says and what its instruction is for you. You want to know what that looks like? Read Psalm 1 this afternoon. What's, what's the outcome of someone who knows God's word well? Life-giving chapter right there. And then they're thankful and again, I'm real careful with this. I don't want to overgeneralize, but my experience has shown this to be true. Uh, people who struggle with the fear of man tend to be uh, not very thankful people. Uh, as you are desperately trying to fulfill needs in yourself out of your own strength, that by just naturally seems to make you a, a very ungrateful person. The attitude that Paul tells us here is, is we are grateful for being rooted. We are grateful for what Christ has done in our lives. We are counting our blessings, not our anxieties. Because here's the flip side in Colossians chapter 2. We read verse 6 and 7. Listen to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. 
The flip side, and Paul knew it all too well, is that the minute you take your eyes off Jesus and put them on yourself, you succumb to that constantly. We call that pride. It's when you take your eyes off Jesus and you say, you know what, I can actually have a much better life if I just do what I want. That's pride, and that's the breeding ground for idolatry. Paul saw that we got to be rooted. We're rooted people. And so here are the three blessings then that come from the person who's walking with the Lord. Number one is this, you are fruitful. We see that in the very end. Look at the end of verse uh, eight. Uh, It bears fruit. So you are exhibiting the fruit of the spirit. You are showing a character and and a tenacity that God can use for his purposes. Uh, you are displaying an attitude and a, and a humble disposition that God can then use to expand his kingdom. Uh, incredibly profound. That's my prayer when I wake up uh, every morning. I want my kids to see it. I want my wife to see it. Uh, I want the people I work with to see it. I want you to see it. That there is a guy, not who made himself, not reinvented himself to be something special, but is a product of grace. I want, to see, I want people to see the fruit of repentance, not in and of myself, but of the work of Christ. We're fruitful people. We bear fruit. And you look at the context, you look at verse 8, uh, heat and drought are still coming. Uh, for the Christian, there is no, um, you know, time off. You know, we're not any less or more susceptible. In fact, Scripture would tell us to embrace and expect suffering in our lives. And so it's still in the midst of this heat and this drought. Life still happens, but we're still showing fruit. It's because we're tapping into those life-giving waters. Psalm 23, verse 1, a lot of you know it well. Um, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How easily we confuse that. And for some of us, it means uh, if I have a relationship with the Lord, I'm going to be taken care of. I'm not going to want anything. I'm going to have everything that my heart or my mind wants. That's just not true. That's not the point of the verse. The verse articulates that because we have Jesus, we don't need anything else. That's the point of the verse. That's the mark of someone who has fruit in their life. They're rooted in the source, which is Christ. Here's the second blessing they're unafraid does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green, is not anxious in the year of drought. Here's something to consider. And again, with a lot of humility, I say this. Are you an anxious person? Like on a consistent daily basis, are you constantly living out of anxiety? Maybe we got to have a serious conversation about the fear of man and idols in your life. Because what I found is that forgiven people People who are walking with the Lord, people who are trusting in the Lord, who are rooted, have a much different disposition when the heat and the drought comes. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but by prayers of supplications and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will be with you. As Christians, on an ongoing basis, we have no need to be anxious. Yes, of course, we're going to have moments of fear. Yes, of course, we're going to have moments of intimidation. But if your life is characterized as perpetual anxiety, 
that quite often arises when we think people are big and God is small? Are you an anxious person? A rooted person isn't anxious. And here's the last thing. They're unceasing. Even though there's... Uh, doesn't fear when heat comes, its leaves remain green. It isn't anxious in the year of drought. It does not cease to bear fruit. Here's another question I would have for you this morning. If you were to chart your spiritual life, your walk with the Lord, is it a roller coaster? Or is it a general going up with the odd tick? There's a difference there. For a lot of us, we're just all over the place. And I've been there in my own life where we have seasons where we're walking with the Lord and then the heat and the drought comes and it's bam and then we're just off the radar. That's not the mark of a rooted Christian. Your roots aren't deep enough. Rather, a rooted Christian, you're trending positively, understanding that life happens and we're human and we will never be perfect this side of heaven. So we have these little moments short seasons, but generally we're trending upwards. We're unceasing. And so here's where we go from this morning, the so what. Here's the question I think we all need to ask. Who do you fear? Who do you fear? Who's on the throne of your heart here this morning? Did you enter the building this morning a shrub or a tree? And understand that there is incredible hope and healing that's found in the gospel. You look at the rest of Jeremiah 17. Look with me at verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Here's the hope for us here this morning. Whether you're a tree or a shrub. Verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Don't leave here this morning without getting humble, repenting, getting a plan, and making it right. Who's on the throne of your life? Who are you praising? Is it God or man? And regardless of how you entered here this morning, we all have the same objective as we leave, that we are a saved people, we can be a healed people, but God should be the object of our praise. Hear that promise. We know in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Reprioritize, restructure, get right with the Lord. Get accountable, get humble about it, and let's move forward. I've said to many people who, who have sat in my office who, um, who are wrestling with any kind of thing that the journey of hope and healing is a prayer away. That's all it takes. If you're willing to acknowledge the problem, be humble about it, and take a step forward, that's all that's required. And let the work of the Holy Spirit then move and urge and structure your path forward. And so I'll leave you with this. Ed Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, uh, created a quiz to help people uh, assess whether they may have the fear of man in their life, if they have idols in their life. In their life. Series of questions I'm going to read, answer them in your heart. And if you answer yes to any of them, and I've answered yes to some in all three services, so you don't need to feel too, too bad. 
Come on up, get prayer after the service, talk to the person who is with you. Don't leave here without making it right. Okay, listen to these. Who do you think about the most? Do you struggle with peer pressure? Are you always overcommitted and have a hard time disappointing people by saying no? Do you always need something from relationships, whether it's to be respected or to be heard? Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? Do you ever feel as though you'll be exposed or will be perceived as an imposter? Do you change decisions because of what other people think? Do you feel empty or meaningless? Are you easily embarrassed? Do you ever lie? Do you ever embellish the truth so that others will listen, respect, or, or find you funny? Are you jealous of others? Do other people often make you angry or depressed? Do you avoid people? Or do you puff yourself up by always comparing others and then putting them down? If any of those described you here this morning, hear the hope that we have. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. The journey towards hope and healing is a prayer away. Please don't leave without reprioritizing and ensuring that the Lord is the head of your life. And then we're going to trust his grace and we're going to trust his strength and the work of his spirit to make us fruitful, unafraid and unceasing believers. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Uh, Lord, I am the first to admit how I fall short in this area. Lord, I am so appreciative and the comfort that I have knowing that your grace is sufficient. Father, forgive me for when I cheapen it and seek to find meaning and have needs felt elsewhere. Lord, by virtue of understanding the gravity of the crucifixion and the resurrection, what it cost you to save me, Lord, would that alone be sufficient for my joy for my purpose in being. Would I never look at another human being to find that, Lord? I thank you for your grace. Would we be a people marked by people who are walking with you? We're not a perfect people, but we're people who are sincere about having you on the throne of our hearts. Would we not have hearts of stone, Lord, but would we have the heart of flesh that's, that's imprinted by your word so that we would be fruitful that we would be unceasing in our kingdom impact and that we would be unafraid. Help us to do that. Help us to do that well. Pray these things in your name. Amen.